Hello, folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism in order to find some common ground that could bring us together. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory. And recently, you guys may have heard that after a sudden escalation of tension spawned by a series of murky events, the United States finds itself about two minutes away from going to war with a smaller country located in a region rich in natural resources. Now, your first question is probably, what year is this? (laughs) And you're completely justified in asking that. But it is 2019, and this time, Northrop Grunman, or... No, 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 no Lockheed. Uh, no, it's Halliburton, right? Or, no, 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 here it is. Foreign policy experts. There it is. Foreign policy experts have identified Iran as the next hotspot. So today, we're going to take a look at the history of U.S.-Iranian relations, the recent troubles, and try to help you guys make sense of what may or may not be going on. But first, we'd like to thank all of you folks for listening to the show. It's been absolutely wonderful you know having you guys the opportunity to engage with you guys on on reddit and twitter getting your emails and all that stuff and not to mention how honored we feel by the fact that you guys have contributed to our patreon yeah yeah i want to talk about patreon for a second actually uh because to be honest i in a million years did not think that we (laughs) would actually be making money on patreon either man as you know uneducated (laughs) schlubs talking about politics and and culture um but but thank you right now we're sitting halfway to our first goal at about 50 dollars a month uh and theory and i have been trying to figure out how to spend that money besides you know beer and cigarettes and and podcast big big beer um, but anyway, uh, we have decided since we talk a lot about, uh, you know, journalism on this show and how important it is to take back journalism as citizens. Uh, I think a big part of that is going back to paying for news. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have compiled a short list being so tired of the block pages you've reached, you know, the, your limit of monthly articles. And now you can't just go into incognito. They've shut that one down over it the last driving month driving me so. nuts. So we've decided to come out of pocket and uh, pay for news uh, because we do rely on journalists to do the heavy investigative lifting uh, so we can try to filter out the bias and bring you guys a perspective that we think is valuable. Um, we are subscribing to Washington Post that costs 10 bucks a month at the regular price. New York Times, 15 bucks a month. Wired is cheap at 10 bucks a year. God uh, love but them. they do great reporting. Uh, and we've actually sourced them quite a few times on this show. And The Economist, which is by far the most expensive at $20 a month. And that, so, that leaves Yeah, us. I think with my math, that leaves about $5 a month for the beer. That's so, right. Needless to say, we're going to be drinking cheap this week. Yep. No Lagunitas. It's a uh, horse piss lager. So mm-hmm. uh, enjoy, buddy. <laughs> yeah, but we really do appreciate all you guys have done. That said, we still need your help. So while we've reached a point that we weren't sure that we could ever reach, we're still not where we want to be. More than ever, we need you guys to step up and give us a hand. Uh, you know, whether it's leaving iTunes reviews or, you know, just telling your friends and family about us, we deeply appreciate anything that you can do to help increase our visibility. The biggest obstacle that we face as independent podcasters is simply getting the word out about the show. We've done some some advertising here and there. You know, we've done what we can afford, frankly, um, and it's helped. But we're always looking for alternative methods. But, you know, we have this resource, which is you, the audience. 
And, you know, we're just really asking you guys, please help us get the word out. Yeah. So, folks, tell your parents, uh, tell your dad, tell your neighbors, tell strangers in the laundromat, as one of our <laughs> listeners uh, actually was kind enough to do. Thanks, Jess. Uh, help us reach new listeners. And if you have a moment, stop by the Reddit, hit us up on Twitter, join the Facebook group. All of those things help create the sort of community that people want to be a part of. Uh, and also open the door for us to do bigger and better things in the future. I will say we got our first one star review on iTunes and it really gets my goat. So bury that guys. I, please. I, I wear it as a badge of honor. We might be a three star <laughs> podcast. I'll take that even though 99% of our reviews are five star reviews. Thanks guys. Bury that one star. What a heretic. <laughs> we will keep doing our absolute damnedest to bring you the best show that we can produce every two weeks and foster that that online community that we always wanted to foster where you can you know stand up and speak your mind and 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 also broaden your perspective by being exposed to other views uh but we can only make it to the next level with your guys' support the so. power is yours that's right so without further ado uh let's jump right into this man um theory you're certainly the history guy uh so why don't you kick us off and try to explain what got us in this mess and why we have such terrible relations with Iran. Oh, well, that's easy. That's only going to take, you know, probably the next hour and a half. But let's <laughs> see what we can do. Um, so if we're talking about our woes, they trace back with Iran back to, you know, roughly the end of World War II. Prior to World War II, if we're talking about, you know, Iran and, and foreign powers being involved there, then really and truly we're talking about two people. We're talking about the British and the Russians. The, the British always wanting to expand their empire. I mean, hell, they owned a quarter of the globe at one point, you know, um, and also wanting to secure the rich oil fields that they found in 1907, uh, you know, tried to maintain a strong presence, uh, not only in Iran, but in the Middle East, you know, at large. Russia, meanwhile, borders Iran. Um, you know, there's now there's Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan and all, you know, these little countries and stuff. But, you know, roughly Russia has always had a border with Iran. And that is kind of their avenue to get into the Middle Eastern sphere and be, you know, a force there to be reckoned. With. Right. The geographical position of Iran is very advantageous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because it just kind of opens up the entire, you know, rest of the world to these two these two areas. Mm -hmm. So the two went back and forth for years trying to establish control of the region and what was dubbed at the time the Great Game. Because, you know, hey, we're being colonists and, and imperialists, so let's call it a game. Roll you know? the dice. We're playing risk, boys. Someone's <laughs> and, losing a friend today. And so that all kind of culminates uh, in 1941 with the Anglo-Russian invasion of Iran. You know, this is one of those things that kind of gets overlooked. But in the midst of World War II, uh, the English and the Russians invaded Iran to depose a Shah, who the Shah, you know, is another name for king, we'll say, uh, of Iran. But they, they invaded to depose the Shah that Britain had put on the throne 20 years earlier. <laughs> Does that sound familiar to anybody out there in the audience? Nah. <laughs> but uh, they decided that he was too cozy to Hitler and he was stepping on toes. So in 1941, uh, they go in and they put his son, the new Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, uh, on the throne. And they walked off into the sunset and nobody ever meddled in Iranian politics ever again. For about 10 years. About 10 years. Yeah, that's right. Then we get to 1951 and all that goes out the window. And and it's funny because this, this does sound incredibly familiar 
Uh, Oil-rich Middle Eastern country, geographically, strategic location, colonial powers just waiting to get their hands dirty, infiltration, underhanded dealings, followed by military intervention. Oddly enough, and if I were to guess, because we were still young in the early 1900s, America is notably absent from this Middle Eastern dealing. That's right, up until... 1951 because now we're ready to play right now we're standing there as as the superpower after world war ii you know russia's kind of you know making a claim but you know let's be honest we were the superpower (laughs) right um so in 1951 there's interesting things happening inside iran so the the shah uh reza is uh he's trying to bring the country to deliver on its promise of an Iranian constitution that had been signed back in 1907, right? They had implemented this constitution, but the previous shahs had never, you know, they, they, for instance, the constitution calls for a Senate, but the Senate in 19, in the late 1940s had yet to be seated, uh. you know? So there's all these beautiful democratic things that are in this constitution, but they They're haven't been, been realized. Implemented, yeah. right. So, so, uh, Pahlavi, he's working on that. And there's this prime minister who ends up getting elected, and his name is Mohammed uh, Mossadegh. And he comes through with all these ideas. He's like, hey, I really like, Shah, what you're doing and implementing all these democratic ideas. Why don't we, uh, you know, give the people a little bit more power? You know, hey, no, it's cool. You can still be Shah, but we're going to, we're just, you know, we're going to, I tell you what. How about we nationalize the Iranian oil industry? Which was owned by the The British. British. And the British are, you know, drop their crumpet right into their tea and they're like, hold up, what's what's going on here? Right. So a a few things first off. For one, we're talking about Iran having a king and being a monarchy. Right. And then there's a constitution and a prime minister. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, so. What's up with that? I mean, yeah, so, to me, those are mutually exclusive things. No, it's 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 like a constitutional monarchy. It's it's a little different from what you've seen, though, right? Like in our lifetime, all we've seen is is Britain, right? Sure. Constitutional monarchy. The monarchs there, but you know, they're mainly there for photo ops and to cut ribbons on things when they're you know official ceremonies to spend ungodly amounts of money. And so at, this is a constitutional well. monarchy that's kind of like in transition, right? So. So it is a monarchy. It it develops the constitution in the early 20th century. And now the the new Shah, he's trying to actually like make good on some of those promises. Meanwhile, the prime minister, Mossadegh, he wants it to be more like Britain. He sure. wants the Shah to just go around and cut ribbons and stuff. And the Shah's like, I don't know. Well, hang on. Yeah. Hang so, on. so when we're yeah. talking about nationalizing uh, oil companies that previously belonged to Britain, we're literally talking about military operations to take those buildings back. Yeah, in some cases, uh, they had to send in the uh, the Iranian army to actually escort the the British employees, the foreign nationals who were working in Iran, out of the buildings. But for the most part, I mean, it's it's not like a a, a hostile military thing. You know, I mean, there was some there was some resistance. It's just like, hey, we're going to escort you like, guys off the premises. Hey, Shell, sorry, this factory's ours now. We'll run it. Thank you for staying. You know, I'll see you later. <laughs> yeah, see you guys later. Um, so, what is what exactly is this? Is the Shah doing at this point? I mean, uh, the Prime Minister is acting in a decidedly anti-British manner, right? right? And the Shah, who has been kind of propped up or at least enjoying the political protection of America and Britain. Um, surely he's not on board with this plan, right? Right. So, so the Shah right here is thrown into a wedge that's going to kind of last 
for the entirety of the Shah's reign, right? On one hand, yes, he wants to, you know, westernize the country and make things look good for America and Britain, his, his friends and everything. Uh, on the other hand, I, he don't want to lose too much power. He's mm. still the guy, right? He's still the guy on top. So he's trying to strike a balance. And increasingly, the longer that, you know, the prime minister, the uh, Masadic, is in office, it becomes more confrontational. And as he begins to, you know, piss off the foreign powers, because we got to remember, so now America and Britain, now that these British companies have been nationalized by Iran, they're scared to death. They're, they're full on afraid that now free brown people with hordes of oil money might irresponsibly <laughs> use it to improve their countries. So they've got to do something. Taking and, back a little sovereignty. That's right. Mm. So MI6 and the CIA, they immediately leap into action. Right. So in, in what the CIA dubbed Operation Ajax, uh, a period of civil and political unrest was instigated using propaganda campaigns. We're talking about paying journalists to produce pro-Shah, anti-Mossadegh pieces, uh, paying detractors to show up in public places and, and, and raise a stink. Um, you know, mass public demonstrations, basically the how to turn a country against its leader playbook that's been used so many times since then. Yeah, absolutely. And really interesting. The guy who was actually on the ground running this for the CIA was Kermit Roosevelt Jr., who is the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt, right? You Our president? Say. No, he was the guy. So he's there running the organization. He's or the I'm sorry, the the coup, basically the, the operation. operation. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but Operation Ajax, it culminates in 1953, and Masadek is is removed from office. He gets tried for treason. Uh, he ends up being imprisoned for three years in solitary confinement and died under house arrest in 1967. So for 14 years, in effect, you know, he was under arrest and imprisoned. Um, and they, despite the fact, another weird note, despite the fact that his will actually specifically asked that he be buried in this certain place, they buried him in his living room, uh, and it was in order to not make basically a martyr out of him. Because huh. the question becomes, how did the Iranian people react to the fact that, you know, Masadic has been removed? So Operation Ajax built a lot of sentiment uh, amongst people to have Mossadegh removed and, and to go with the Shah and trust the Shah and all that good stuff. You know, the Shah was propped up. But at the same time, there were plenty of people who kind of knew what was up. Right. So now granted while that, that Ajax was able to, you know, build critical mass and, and eventually get like, you know, parts of the military to flip and go and arrest the prime minister and all that good stuff. It, it by no means was like, you know, 90% of the country is now lockstep with the Shah and everything. And a lot of people know that America just meddled in their shit. Sure. Um, and so here we are in 1953, uh, the CIA, by the way, is, is pretty darn new. I think it was just established in 1945, uh, somewhere about there. And here they've successfully deposed a threatening foreign prime minister. They've strengthened our alliance with Britain and they've ensured that the Shah would likely be friendly with America for, for years to come. Yeah. It's like mission accomplished. And uh, the CIA in its infancy uh, looks like a great shining new program that yeah. everyone and, just loves. And this is the first time that the CIA really showed what it can do. And it would use it would use Ajax as like a textbook for, you know, the things that it would go on to do in banana republics down in South America and stuff. Um, it's, it's importance to what's to come in the rest of the story of the, the coup is importance uh, for the Iranian U S relations cannot be understated. It is the seed from which all things grow. You have to understand that prior to world war two, when I, you know, I was telling you that the British and the Russians 
were meddling in the country, there were times where Iran came to the U.S. for help and asked them to talk to the British and get them to back off on this or back off on that. And they, and not completely, you know, but they came to see the U.S. as not like the other colonial powers. Right. Not like. Not an ally, but yeah. but not hostile either. Right, right. It was sort of neutral, but a little bit more than that because they didn't, they didn't take us, they believed kind of our platitudes and stuff that was on the boilerplate and didn't think that we were as exploitative as Britain or, you know, the French Empire. You got to remember the French Empire was huge sure. at that time before World War II. And I'm sure part of that reason is 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 just geography. I mean, if if American powers had been snugged right up against the border of Iran, yeah. we'd probably be up in their shit just as much. Well, it's because it was also because we were emerging, though, right? Mm. It wasn't until um, the early 20th century that that we, you know, we had the Spanish-American War in the Philippines where we became like an imperialist power as well, where we started to build, you know, what could be referred to as an American empire. So we were new at it. Uh, you know, we also had this story of like, you know, at that point, digging ourselves, picking ourselves up, uh, you know, by the bootstraps over the last hundred years and emerging as a player <laughs> right. on the world stage. So it there there's a sense of betrayal there that I think a lot of people uh, underestimate that that is core to the rest of this story. It's you mean not, like a sense of betrayal from the Iranian from people? From the Iranian people. It's not just that we shit on them and, and performed a coup inside their country. It's that, we, you know, like uh, like uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin, we were supposed to be the chosen ones <laughs> right, to an extent. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right. Like, so, so it sets the stage in that, guys, I think. You know, there's other things that we're going to tell you about that are going to come later, but... But that coup, man, that really is the reason why we're a number one on the death to America list. And and that wasn't too long ago. I mean, we're talking about, what, 70 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Not even 70 years now. Absolutely. So how about the Shah? So after the coup, Iran would be under the control of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Pahlavi, sorry. Pahlavi. For the next 25 years or so, correct? Yeah. But he's got a series of problems, right? So... Unfortunately, before the coup ever even happened, the communists in Iran weren't real happy with him, right? Communists in Iran, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. At this time, there's there's plenty of communists, uh, and then Russia is actually still trying to exert its influence, so it's sending communists. But, you know, communism, uh, hell, I mean, we had a sizable communist population in the sure. early of the 20th century, you know, stretching all the way to the 50s and stuff. Still do. But, uh, but so he's got the communists who tried to assassinate him before the coup, uh, now he's got, uh, you know, Masodic's people who they're not real happy with him for letting yet another foreign power meddle in our affairs. And he's, it's basically, it's, he's got the support of like the, the Islamic clerics in Iran, but only because the Islamic clerics were really upset with the things that Masodic was trying to do. So they kind of sided with the Shah and so long as he's willing to make Iran uh, a Islamic country, they're they're good for him. But <laughs> right, but he kind of ain't. So you know, there there struggles there. So what is he to do? Yeah, he's kind of on shaky ground, right? Um, and to me, it looks like the Shah was like a really complicated guy. On the one hand, he is a king. He's he's a monarch, and. He was said to have believed that politics was a diabolical invention of people who were uniquely after their own personal interests. On the other hand, there's this whole democracy thing, and he seems to be okay, at least in some cases, with giving power to the people. So, like, what's what's up with that? Yeah. So he's gotta he's gotta he's gotta like play this balancing game. And now that America's involved, and America is who is propping him up, it's even more so. 
you have to remember too, that during this period, it's the cold war, right? We've got communist Russia and the countries that they're trying to influence and America and the countries that they're trying to influence. So what would it look like if the Shah and Iran, who everybody knows that America is propping up just threw democracy out the window, right? That wouldn't be a good look, especially if there's this communist element that's trying to overthrow him. So he mm. has to, he has to give in to this, this Westernization and this, this democratic principles and stuff. But at the same time, he wants to maintain power. How do you do that if everyone hates you? Well, of course, you institute secret police. <laughs> and he absolutely he goes to the Americans, and the Americans are like, hey, man, we will help you do that. They send over experts from the CIA, including Norman Schwarzkopf Sr., who would be the father of Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf from the Gulf War. And he teaches this, this ragtag group of recruits how to become one of the most brutal secret police forces that the world has ever seen, the Savak. Family values, man. <laughs> I'll tell you what. How come, how come we see the same families and the same players uh, you know, throughout history, yeah. uh, separated by 40 years sometimes, but then here they come popping up in the same places again? Yeah. What's with that? No, yeah, that is a really good question. What is that? I can't, I can't answer that one directly. <laughs> but uh, the Savak was, was at, like I said, it was absolutely brutal. Um, they had the power to censor the media, screen applicants for government jobs, and use all means necessary, including torture, to hunt down dissonance. That was their game. Um, during the height of their power, their, you know, their powers were virtually unlimited, and they even operated their own detention centers. In addition to domestic security, uh, they were also tasked with keeping tabs on Iranians abroad, like Iranians here in the United States or in France or England, and especially, you know, the students who were living on government stipends. Like, they watched you, man. And I think it's important not to uh, undersell how very brutal the Savak was. Um, I mean, we're talking about sleep deprivation, uh, bastinado. Yeah, the, the bastinado is a, a corded rope that you whip the soles of someone's feet with. It was a favorite of the sabak. Yeah, solitary confinement, uh, searchlights in your eyes, making someone stand in place for hours on end, you know, pulling out your fingernails with pliers, uh, snakes, which were favored for their use <laughs> with women. Yeah, just uh, straight up snakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, electric shocks with cattle prods, often into the rectum yeah like not just prodding your ass but prodding inside, inside. your asshole yeah. um cigarette burns the list goes on and on acid dropped in your nostrils uh near drownings which i assume is uh probably it's like waterboarding, waterboarding. Yeah. exactly um i mean the list goes on and on and on i don't feel the need to read through the whole thing um, but there was one in particular I thought was really interesting, and that is the Apollo, yeah. which was like a large metal mask that, that that muted your screams from the outside, but it amplified your screams back to you. And it yeah. was dubbed the Apollo uh, because, you know, the space capsule. Yeah, Apollo. it looked like the space capsule. <laughs> right. And they would actually, they would put you in the Apollo when they put you in a, a low-grade electric chair is what uh, they would do. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was terrible. and. And it, it, it makes this really weird uh, uh, thing to look at, right? Because it's through this brutality that the Shah was able to deliver the, the thoroughly westernized and somewhat socially liberal society 
that we see in those old pictures right. from the 60s. So I, everyone's seen them, I'm sure, shared uh, around and around social media of of people in Iran, you know, sitting in a park with bell-bottom jeans, right. um, you know, dressed like hippies and and just normal women out in the streets uncovered, mm-hmm. um, very much uh, what we would picture to be Indistinguishable a Indistinguishable from a picture of America in the 60s. Absolutely. Sure, absolutely. And... Uh, here, here's here's where the cracks begin to show, though, because like Masadic, he does not come through on that Islamic nation that the clerics so desperately wanted. And in fact, he starts this program that they called the White Revolution. It's it's so called because it was bloodless, right? Uh, not the, because it was sponsored by the white folks <laughs> no, of America. No, 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 <laughs> just because it was bloodless. Uh, but he starts it in the mid. That's mid-60s. what they want you to think. And and what he was what he was trying to do was the middle class was starting to turn on him somewhat because of the Savak and because of some of the oppressive things and, 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 uh, you know, shutting and down I'm sure the, the clerics are, are getting unhappy uh, yeah. and they're raising a stink in mosques. Right, so right. people are following along going, so, hey, we he, want an Islamic nation too. So we had this plan. He's like, we're going to do this white revolution and I'm going to take land from the nobility and give it to the peasant classes. I'm going to institute all these reforms that's going to make the peasant classes love me. Right. And and he's not just not just that and and really you say take land, but he was he was buying back land. So he would right. buy land from the barons uh at presumably market value, sell it back to the peasant class at 30% below market value with low or no interest long-term loans. Mm-hmm. And his idea was to get the peasant class involved in Iran, right? right? And give them some sort of standing um, and hopefully support for the Shah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't just that. Um, he was he was enfranchising women. Yeah. He gave women the right to vote. Um, some pretty pretty darn progressive stuff. I mean, I, I even one of the tenets was was profit sharing. Right. Yeah. If you yeah. were an industrial worker in manufacturing, you were entitled to a twenty percent share. You know, the twenty percent of the share got split among the workers uh, in, in manufacturing. So this is like really really progressive stuff. And it's funny because in the face of criticism from like Shiite fundamentalists, uh, the Shah says, if you are unhappy that your country makes progress, if you're unhappy that your country is saying goodbye to this feudalistic system, if you're unhappy that half the population, the women, are emancipated, well, this I can't help. Yeah, he basically told him to like it or lump it, man. Um <laughs> But it, when you take everything together, the the angering of the powerful clergy, the the redistribution of the land from the upper classes to the peasantry, the close relationship with America, and the brutality of the secret police, this will ultimately result in the downfall of the Shah. And and how wild is this, man? I, I just I just want to point this out because the parallels um, are just they're super interesting to me. Um, how much does the Shah here? Sound like the modern day Democratic Party dragging the fundamentalist populace kicking and screaming into a more just and equal future. Right? Yeah, the only difference is he put the secret police in place before. <laughs> <laughs> zing, zing. Um, and I don't get me wrong. There are some eerie similarities. You know, there are some parallels here and here and there. I am definitely not trying to make the case that the Democratic Party is the Shah, you know, by any means. Um, But I I think it's I think it's important to watch history and the way these parallels play out. And they're not always one to one comparisons. Yeah. uh, But I think we can glean information from from looking at the parallels. Yeah. No, the case of the Shah, like I said, is, is it's something that it's hard for 
you know, at first glance for Americans to wrap our, our heads around. Because here, we're going to move on to the revolution of 1979 in Iran. Right, as tensions and, are kind of building up to some sort of culmination. You know, the pressure's got to give sometime. Right, and and yes, a big portion of that revolution is going to be because of the secret police. But on the other hand, it's also going to be because of the things that we here in America would support without a second thought. Mm. Like enfranchising women. That's going to be one of the root causes of the fact that he got deposed. We're not used to seeing revolutions based on decreasing the amount of freedom in a country. You know what I mean? <laughs> to, to an extent. Now, it, it gets complicated, and we'll get into it. But one of the things, whenever you're looking at a revolution, uh, that you have to remember is that it's easy to look back and say, oh, well, the Shah did this, and then he did that, and that caused them to do this, and that's why there was a revolution. But it's not that easy when the, you're there. Yeah, at the <laughs> time, man, if you're on the ground back then, it, it didn't necessarily look like that. It might have looked like it could go one way or the other. And most of the world, including America, uh, were caught with their pants down with the Iranian revolution. That's not to say that they didn't see it, you know, coming. I think it's six months out from the revolution. You know, America's like, oh, we got a problem and stuff. But, but in the grand scheme of things, this caught people unaware. So it's impossible to discuss the revolution without mentioning the man who would stand as the supreme leader of Iran when the dust settled. And that's Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini. Uh, Khomeini emerged as a figure in Iranian politics by being the most vocal critic of the white revolution. So for instance, when the Shah is coming out and he's saying women can vote, uh, the very, uh, fundamentalist Islamic Ayatollah Khomeini is like, what? Uh, I've got a problem with that. <laughs> um, his, his prominence in the opposition movement in the early sixties actually led to an extended period of house arrest and then his eventual exile. And he will actually live in Iraq and then in France up until the 1979 revolution. So a period of about 14 years. Um, meanwhile, while he's in exile, he's still the rallying point kind of for the anti-Shah movement because he's releasing these sermons and writings that are being smuggled back into the country by sympathetic clerics. Right. So, so try as you might to keep his influence sequestered from the Iranian people. There's plenty of people who are bringing his words, his thoughts back into the country, and he's very much leading a group of people yeah. from afar. And it's actually, it's kind of funny. Uh, when he was in Iraq, uh, they, they were constantly, America and, and the Shah were pressuring the Iraqi government to uh, further, to kick uh, Khomeini out of there. And uh, when they did it and he went to France, it actually got worse because in France, he had better access to technology and stuff. He could actually just, he could get a phone yeah. in France and stuff, you know? So uh, the revolution, you know, it, it begins to coalesce around Khomeini. And it's weird because, like I said, what, what seems so foreign to us is that it coalesces around the ideas that the westernization that the Shah is pushing is the source of Iran's ills. Oh, wait, you mean competing outside values were a threat to the cohesion and identity <laughs> of Iran, and they should protect themselves from that outside influence by whatever means possible? Uh, yeah. Oh, look, this isn't the first time I'm going to draw parallels between the fundamentalist Christian right and Islam on this show. Uh, it certainly won't be the last time, but go on. Okay. So... In Iran, this, this revolution is coalescing around the ideas that, that Western culture is a plague that has to be eliminated. And most certainly, 
uh, the atheistic communists and, and meddlesome Russia, they need to be eliminated too. And, and I think it's funny because in, in a lot of ways he's right, right? I mean, the Savak would never have happened uh, had America not brought, you know, Storm and Norman's pop over yeah. to teach them how to torture people. Well, like, that's that's what they were. They were able to use that, but they were also making an argument that, that we're familiar with here is that the, the women wearing slacks and all that stuff that is debasing Iranian society. Sure. And flies you know, in the face all of Islamic the religious teachings. fundamental arguments that we've heard. So, so yeah, they, they, it's, it's, they were able to tie together the, the, <laughs> the worst one, two punch ever. They were able to take what we think is the good parts about America and say that they were bad too, because they're intrinsically tied to the bad parts <laughs> right, of America. Right. You know? um, and they were able to kind of sell the idea that Islam would be the only liberator for a third world country trying to escape the oppression of colonious, uh, colonial and, and powers and capitalism and stuff. They were, they were, they were looking around and they were saying, you know, look at these countries. Uh, they're not climbing out of this through Westernization. Look at South America. You know what I mean? So if, if you're going to, if we're going to get out of this rut, only Islam right. can take you to where you need to be. It's really interesting that Khomeini was able to kind of play a shell game, right? Because he's able to, for instance, you know, he goes to the youth real hard, the Iranian youth real hard on that tack. Like Islam is the way, you know, martyrdom is the way that we will achieve justice, uh, revolution. Uh, and it's the only way to dig ourselves out of the third world country status. But he also goes to the other economic groups that are opposing the Shah in Iran at the time. And he's like, oh, yes. The socioeconomic issues that our country faces are great too, and he kind of doesn't talk about the Islam so much there, right? Mm. The entire time, Khomeini knows that if they win the revolution, he's going to institute an Islamic <laughs> fundamentalist state, but he doesn't really tell people. And, and, and that's what's crazy. As we see the Iranian revolution kind of unfold in 1978 to 1979, uh, 79 being when the Shah you know, eventually goes into exile, Khomeini returns from exile triumphantly, and he takes power, you know, over Iran as the supreme leader. Um, a lot of those groups that had helped form the coalition that pushed the Shah out suddenly find themselves clashing with Khomeini's government, and and they straight up loudly protest as they're being carried off to jail, saying we've been deceived. Imagine being deceived by a religious leader. <laughs> yeah, imagine I mean, that. oh my God, can you imagine the shock? Yeah, the the amount of forgiveness that they, you know, when they they say, well, he's not as liberal as we are, but, but he's getting things done. It should take, make everybody like take pause and think about these cults of personalities that well, form around people. Like and that. I think when, when there's something so terrible, I, I think we can draw parallels to Trump today when there's something so terrible as secret police that are disappearing people and torturing them. Right. You almost take any, any opposition any you, you can. can. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when when it gets so bad and you and you paint people into a corner, um, you're just looking for better at that point. You're not right. looking for the best solution. So Khomeini was a way out, yeah. and and they grabbed it and took it. And who can blame them? Yeah. No. Absolutely, man. So you know whether it was American hubris or just another testament to the inefficiency of the Carter administration. Uh, the United States has always was always a day late and a dollar short when it came to dealing with the Iranian Revolution. And, you know, I'll take a quick aside to say one of the things uh, Jimmy Carter gets a bad rap and it's terrible because President Jimmy Carter, the, the Georgia peanut farmer, 
is perhaps one of the sweetest men that has ever walked the face of the earth. My man is 90 <laughs> years old. He's a kind man. He is 90 years old out there working for Habitat for Humanity, yeah. dude. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, terrible president, dude. Absolutely <laughs> terrible president. And one of the problems was is that uh, stories from inside the White House at that time is that Carter micromanaged everything. He didn't trust anybody and tried to literally run our entire country by his damn self. And the fact that the country didn't just explode is a testament <laughs> to Carter's work ethic, but at the same time, things <laughs> fell through the cracks, and Iran was absolutely one of them. He just he just never took the right approach, right? Right, so, it's almost like he didn't know what to do. Yeah, no, it is, it is. So he's wrestling the whole time with how long he should maintain support for the Shah and the late stages of the revolution, and, and he's waffling on whether or not, you know, they deposed the Shah, and now he's like, well, I, I don't know, should I grant him asylum in the United States or not? And and he doesn't know. But all of this is, meanwhile, fostering an air of uncertainty in Iran, right? So this is in the period immediately after the revolution. In February of 79, uh, uh, Khomeini has taken over control of the country. And, you know, the, the next six, seven, eight months, Carter's like, ah, yeah, maybe we can get along with Khomeini and stuff. Right. But and Iran's over there going, well, they've infiltrated once before. Are they going to do it again? Yeah. And that we've was, deposed the Shah. Are they going to come back with another coup? And that was furthered along by good old Kermit Roosevelt Jr. You remember that guy, right? Oh, the yeah. The guy who ran the coup? Well, in August of 1979, a mere six months after Khomeini comes to power in Iran, he publishes Counter Coup, The Struggle for Control of Iran, a tell-all on uh, how he destabilized the government of Iran in the 50s. So in the a midst... A big damn help, Kermit. <laughs> in you know? the midst of this huge this huge conflict and kerfluffle and, and confusion, Kermit comes out and he's just kind of waving his thing around like, yeah. <laughs> look what I did. Like Why he would pick... I mean, I get it, right? Because when else is that book going to sell? Because, you know, Iran's in the news. <laughs> but why on earth you would come out with that book at that point? I mean, it was just a bad idea and and so carter ends up protecting our asset instead of just throwing the shot of the wolves uh, i mean giving the iranian people justice <laughs> wait 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 how about throwing the shah out with the bathwater? Because uh, we love that one. That'll here. connect with our listeners. <laughs> so anyway, Carter grants the shah asylum, and of course that leaves Iranian revolutionaries pretty darn angry. Yeah. In fact, angry enough to storm the U.S. embassy in Tehran and take 52 diplomats and staff hostage for what turns out to be 444 days. Yeah. That's almost a year and a half. Yeah, and and that was a, you know, a seminal moment in American culture. Uh, a lot of people can remember seeing the hostages on TV. It kind of it, it dominates the early 80s. What's, what's interesting about it is uh, they would be released after the signing of the Algiers Accord on Reagan's inauguration day, which was January 20th, 1981, and the hostage crisis, which ate up like you know pretty much the entire last year and a half of Carter's uh, presidency, was seen as one of the key reasons why he lost his reelection. Wait, wait a second, wait a second. So, so Carter is trying to get reelected uh -huh. while he is uh, playing this this game with what to do with the Shah. Yeah. The 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 hostage crisis is going on, yeah. and you tell me that the day after the election. Nope. This Algiers Accord, or the day of? The day Reagan's inaugurated. Oh, his yeah, inauguration yeah, 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 yeah. day? Yeah. Then then all of a sudden, the Algiers Accord is just magically signed? Well, a funny story about that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, not really confirmed, but it's out there. The idea is is that the, the Reagan campaign was exerting pressure 
on the diplomats that we were using to negotiate with Iran about the hostages, uh, unbeknownst to Carter, to keep the hostages under in captivity, basically. Well, maybe Carter should have trusted his people and, a little more. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm just and they set it up, uh, you know, they kind of lengthened it out and set it up so that the Algiers Accord would be signed on January 19th, which is the day before Reagan's inauguration. And so that then Reagan could be inaugurated and within hours of being inaugurated, come through and, you know, the hostages are released and it looks like, oh, Messiah, you know, whether or not that's, you know, 100% true, you know, I, I don't know. It's out there. I'll put it to you like that. It's out right. there. Um, but at any rate, this event, the, the hostage crisis crystallized the new era in U.S.-Iran relations, man. It, it sets the tone for all, you know, the decades that have followed since. Carter, in April of 1980, severed all diplomatic relations with Iran, and they have yet to be restored to this day. In fact, the way it works is Switzerland represents U.S. interests to the Iranian government, and I think it's Pakistan, it's Pakistan yep. uh, represents Iranian interests to us. So, so we don't even talk. We yeah, don't even have open channels. Yeah, we do not have we, officially we've got open middlemen that are channels. that are playing go between. Yeah, and uh, and you know the eighties and nineties, the the story there is just the U.S. and Iran being at odds and and even coming to blows. But even though we don't have those open channels, it, it gets kind of weird because there are these back channels, right? Let me let me kind of lay this out for a second. The there's the militant Lebanese political party called Hezbollah is is basically funded and supported and started up around this time by Iran. Iran, as soon as you know Khomeini takes power, they start looking to cause uh, Shiite res- uh, insurrections in other countries. Like uh, for instance, they're going to get into a long eight year war with Iraq. Uh, because of trying to instigate a, a Shiite insurrection, and also because Iraq was trying to take advantage of the fact that they just went under a revolution and stuff, there were a few causes for that war. But um, but yeah, it, Iran, uh, there's no question there is sponsoring Hezbollah, and Hezbollah is coming straight at us, acting as a proxy. Right, and we're talking about like the 1983 U.S. embassy bombing, uh, the '84 Beirut barracks bombing, uh, I, I'm, the the hijacking of TWA flight. 847 that's yeah. just to name a few like, yeah it goes on and on and on and and we weren't angels either by no means you know the united states was going right back at iran just as hard right we backed iraq in the iraq iran war throughout the 80s we launched an attack on iranian oil platforms in 87 and 88 um, america claimed this was in retaliation for iran laying mines in the persian gulf specifically aimed at Crippling crucial oil tankers. Parallel. Where is that come from? Sounds really familiar, right? Um, And then in a tragic and dismal display, one of America's uh, very low, low points, if you ask me, uh, we shot down Iran Air Flight 655, killing all 300 people on board, including 66 children. And America claims to have mistakenly identified that as an Iranian warplane. It was not. It was carrying civilians. Uh, it was registered as a commercial airliner in Iranian airspace on a registered flight path. Um, and of course, we would claim that it flew outside the civilian air corridor and did not respond to radio calls. Both claims would eventually be proven false, and the U.S. actually paid Iran and the victims a total of $131 million in the mid-90s. So that's going to be yet another one of those crucial sticking points. The The shooting down of uh, the Iranian airliner is, uh, again, it's if, if the coup is number one, 
The airliner goes up as number two on the list of grievances that Iran comes at us whenever we try to normalize relations. Um, despite all that happening, though, in the 80s, uh, you know, there's these weird, odd moments where necessity makes strange bedfellows, right? So in 1983, Iran is facing the very real prospect of a full-scale communist insurrection. And America actually goes to Iran because, again, we don't want the Soviets to get, you know, any more control of anything and tells them everything they've got on communist elements inside Iran. And Iran is able to completely squash that uprising. So that's that's a very weird choice for us to make. We basically chose the Islamic fundamentalist state over giving the Soviets <laughs> control of something else. Um, then you've got, God bless it, the, the Iran-Contra affair in which the Reagan administration found a highly treasonous workaround to laws prohibiting it from supporting anti-Sandinista government forces in Nicaragua by selling arms to the Iranians and then giving the proceeds to the Nicaraguan rebels. Oh, uh, lead north. <laughs> yeah. uh, lead north. And the funny thing about this story is that we don't even need to get into it here because you can just search YouTube for American Dad Ollie North and they did a brilliant song <laughs> it actually that covers brilliant. all of the details in magnificent <laughs> glory. So go check that out if you have any question about the Sandinistas and uh, and the CIA. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, you know, I mentioned that there's this whole Iraq-Iran war going on from 80 to 88, right? Well, we did side with and support Saddam Hussein and the Iraqis, but yeah, we didn't really want like a real strong Iraq either. So we actually, the entire time through back channels, we're feeding intel to Iran as well. We we just wanted them to weaken each other. You don't say. That's that's the only thing that we Imperialist want. forces playing both sides. <laughs> yeah. What a surprise. So dirty tricks like that continue, uh, you know, on both sides. Uh, us, us pulling our normal, you know, American shenanigans. And Iran full-blooded supporting terrorist attacks against us, uh, you know, most of the time through indirect means, but, you know, full-blooded terrorist attacks. And so in the 90s, uh, Clinton uh, eventually gets around to asking Congress to impose the Iran Sanctions Act. Now, at the time, it was called the Iran and Libyan Sanctions Act, or ILSA, and uh, coupled with two executive orders that he put together, uh, here's the first time where we have widespread sanctions on the Iranian economy and an embargo on certain goods. Right. So so the 1995 executive orders prohibit American companies and their foreign subsidiaries from conducting any business with Iran while banning any contract for the financing of development of petroleum resources located in Iran. So like even indirectly, you know, right. if you're even indirectly involved with with oil in Iran, like eh, eh. Uh, in addition, the Iran and Libya Sanctions Act of 96 uh, imposed mandatory and discretionary sanctions on non-American companies investing more than $20 million annually in the Iranian oil and natural gas sectors. Yeah. And what's what's really interesting about that is the first thing that hits you is you're like, well, what do you mean non-American companies, right? So if I put normal sanctions on Iran, what I'm saying is American companies aren't allowed to do any business with Iran. But then we have these these discretionary and mandatory secondary sanctions that basically say, okay, uh, uh, give me a foreign company, any foreign, uh, Sony. All right, Sony in Japan, if you do business with Iran, then we will sanction Sony and say that American companies can't do business with Sony. Right, and this this gets at the core of the magnificent power 
um, that a world power, a world economic power can wield in right. the form of sanctions, right? Like, Absolutely. It's easy to stop uh, you know, America from doing business with Iran, but when we're such a global economic powerhouse, we can go so far as to, we can't make rules in your country. We can't, we can't force Japan to sanction Iran and, 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 but we can say, if you don't follow our rules, yeah. we're sanctioning you too, buddy. Right. And that is just as good, you know, in far as its impact on the bottom line, you know? Right. So, the sanctions, uh, you know, even to this day, they remain largely in place. They were just renewed in 2016, and they'll come up for renewal again in 2026. And that leaves Iran for the past 30 years being com- more or less completely devoid of contact with the outside world economy. Right. Uh, now, there was a ray of sunshine in, in, in U.S.-Iranian relations. I like right? sunshine. Hey, who doesn't love sunshine? Uh, in 1998, uh, President Mohammad Khatami was elected in Iran, and he gave indications that, you know, he was open to the possibility of there being some thawing in the relations between the U.S. and Iran. Uh, he said he wanted to break down the bulky wall of mistrust. And our Secretary of State at the time, Madeleine Albright, she kind of picked up on this, and she, you know, went right back at him. And signaled America's interest in improving relations by publicly expressing for the first time by any member of the American government regret over the 1953 coup. Now, she did not apologize, (laughs) but she expressed regret. That's kind of close. And it was the first time, like you said, this was the first time anyone in America had addressed this issue on the public stage. So kind of a big move from Madeleine Albright. And and the American government also uh, agreed to ease the embargoes on some items like uh, pistachios and I think... um, rugs and you know a few other things but right they, some they, things that the people might appreciate having in their homes and there were moves made you know to begin the process of a dialogue well interestingly enough not only on our side so in the wake of the september 11th attacks iran was one of the few muslim majority countries to express sympathy for the victims uh and u.s and iranian military forces actually cooperated in some operations aimed at breaking taliban control of afghanistan uh, they're rounding up Al Qaeda operatives, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. all of a sudden, uh, we've taken some steps and we're kind of starting to at least touch pinkies, That's maybe right. not hand in hand. And but- in the wake of the September 11th attacks is when we we reached the true high point of U.S.-Iran relations because Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, now that's not Khomeini. Khomeini died back in 1989 and he was replaced by Ali Khamenei. Um, he temporarily suspended the weekly Death to America chants at Friday mosques throughout Iran in the weeks after September 11th. Now, that's one <laughs> of those things that I hear tossed around kind of as a meme, this Death to America chant thing. And I refuse to believe that that's real. Are you telling <laughs> me that really in mosques across Iran, there is a sanctioned Death to America chant? On Fridays, yes. On there is fr- a Death to America chant what? in mosques on Fridays in Iran. Um, death to America is, it's it's actually, you know, we, we I, I remember it being in, uh, what, Team America, World Police, you know, they did the Death to America yeah. thing. We almost kind of like make fun of it and, you know, it gets thrown out. At times, it, it does get used by... Uh, you know, some right wingers and some racists, sure, to, some to, xenophobes, some xenophobes to get across some, uh, you know, some shitty ideas. But we also have to understand that death to America is like it's a thing in Iran. It's it's something that they they do get together and chant at times. In fact, there's been sessions of parliament that in in Iran that devolved into parliament 
uh, chanting death to America because, you know, they're so upset. And death to America, it isn't just, you know, it's not like us, you know, getting together and saying, give peace a chance. It's, 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 it's like a, it's a, it's, it's well, different it's tied culturally. up in it's tied up in jihad. It's tied up in martyrdom. Right. It's it's tied up in this you know this period of 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 turmoil in Iran. It's tied up in the in the attacks. It's tied up in the coup. It's tied up in in the plane we shot down. Yeah. This is very much like a piece of their cultural identity. Right. Right. That that we've been very heavily involved in creating. Yeah. It's not hatred for the sake of hatred. Yeah. Um, there's a reason for it. Well, no, now I will hang on. I will push back against that because the other big chant in Iran is death to Israel. And yes, we, I, in, in Khamenei's, uh, you know, empire over there, uh, death to America, death to Israel. We are the great Satan's. I mean, it does, it does cross that line into the religious fervor and mm. into that's, that's what I'm saying. It's not, it's not just a bunch of people getting around and being pissed off about something. Yes, there are reasons, but there's also a religious fanaticism to it. We mm. are the representation and embodiment of, of, of evil. evil. Right. That's yes, right. Westernization is the, is the representation of the evil. Right. And so, yeah, it's a little bit more serious than that. And actually the fact that they suspended the death to America chant for a couple of weeks in the wake of nine 11, that's kind of a big damn deal, especially yeah. if you look at how Ayatollah Khamenei feels about the United States, because, you know, there's things that are going to come out here later in the episode. He does not like us at all, at all, man. That was a big concession on his part. So after this big concession and a small concession from Albright, um, Middle Eastern policy genius and beloved American wordsmith George W. Bush Woo, gives, yeah, gives his 2002 State of the Union address in which he describes Iraq, Iran, and North Korea as belonging to an axis of evil that sought to sponsor terror and gain access to weapons of mass destruction. Uh, this speech would not only pretty much immediately chill relations with I Iran, uh, it would also set the tone for the Bush administration's handling of the Middle East from here on out. Yeah, and and I think, you know, your immediate reaction is to think, you know, the president said access to people. I'm sure they're upset about it. I, I, I don't think that quite gets it across. I actually, I did some digging, and I found this excerpt from a New Yorker article. Now, Ryan Crocker, who I'm going to mention in just a moment, uh, was the American diplomat who was working closely with Iranian counterparts on the anti-Taliban and al-Qaeda operations in 2002, before this speech was given, they were actually working with us to take down the Taliban in Afghanistan and, and identify Al Qaeda uh, elements. I have to point out also while sponsoring Hezbollah. Yeah, also while sponsoring Hezbollah. That's that's true. Um, so uh, in January 2002, Crocker, who was by then deputy chief of the, and this is from the article of the American embassy in Kabul, was awakened one night by aides who told him that President George W. Bush in his State of the Union address, had named Iran as part of an axis of evil. Like many senior diplomats, Crocker was caught off guard. He saw the lead Iranian negotiator the next day at the UN compound in Kabul, and he was furious. You completely damaged me, Crocker recalled him saying. Soleimani is in a tearing rage. He feels compromised, and he's referring to Qasim Soleimani, head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Quds Force in one of Iran's most powerful uh, military officials. The negotiator told Crocker that at great political risk, Soleimani had been contemplating a complete reevaluation of the United States, saying, maybe it's time to rethink our relationship with the Americans. 
The axis of evil speech brought the meetings to an end. Reformers inside the government who had advocated a rapprochement with the United States were put on the defensive. Recalling that time, Crocker shook his head. He said, we were just that close. One word in one speech changed history. Thanks, G-Dub. Thanks. Um, yeah, fun fact. Even Daddy Bush told George W. Bush that that speech was a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, that's Mr. That's Chief Satan of the CIA, George H.W. Bush. Right, his self. <laughs> uh, and and we're, while we're talking parallels, I, I got to point it out, man. One poorly spoken non-thinking president in one speech, maybe even with three words, changed the course of history for the worse. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 here we are at the precipice again. Yeah. And that speech, by the way, was written by David Frum. Send all hate mail to him because he's actually proud of it and brags about the fact of how much of that speech was unchanged by the time it was said at the State of the Union address. <sighs> Uh, so it's also to help kind of put that in perspective, there's a Vox article in 2015 that discusses the axis of evil speech. And, uh, it, it says this quote at this point, while Iran had conducted significant research and development on its nuclear program, it had a relatively small enrichment program of only a handful of centrifuges by 2009. When Bush left office, it had 5,000 centrifuges. Its program grew to about 20,000 centrifuges by the time Iran and the world powers reached this year's nuclear deal. Right. And so so this is when we approach uh, the great nuclear deal that is, of course, yeah. in contention today. And I, I think it's interesting to point out right out of the gate um, that Iran has always, at least to the public, stated that they were not interested in producing weapons. They were not interested in producing highly enriched uranium. Instead, mm -hmm. they wanted to bring cheap power uh, in an exercise of sovereignty, mm -hmm. uh, national sovereignty, to the Middle East. Right. Um, and, and to me, this is a great goal. We, we want to transition away from oil economies, right? We want to yeah. stop burning fossil fuels, nuclear power, uh, is a great way to do that with all of the risks involved and you know all that. We're not going to get into that here. Um, but this is a sovereign nation exercising sovereign power uh, to, to, to bring power to, to the Middle East. So, right. you know, here we are. However, <laughs> you do still have the fact that Iran is funding terror. You do still have the fact that they chant death to America at Friday Mosque. You know, sure. you, do, you do still have the fact that Iran... Uh, despite what its intentions may be, they they are this country that is hostile to us and hostile to Israel. That is something else that we have to remember. And if they do get a hold of a nuclear weapon, what might happen? Uh, traditionally, the world has clamped down pretty hard on any further powers trying to develop uh, nuclear weapons. We've had some some couple people got in through the fence there, you know, Pakistan and India and stuff. But, uh, you know, we try to keep a lid on it, right? So you have to watch it. Uh, I think it's important to note that we actually gave Iran nuclear technology back mm -hmm. when the Shah was in power in the 70s. It was called Adams for Peace. And uh, Khomeini, when after the Iranian Revolution, saw nuclear uh, power and stuff as another uh, product of westernization in America and pretty much let their nuclear facilities go into disarray. So it's not until Ali Khamenei is in charge uh, that around the early 2000s, they start to get that nuclear thing going in start earnest. picking up steam. 
technology has progressed. And then the access of evil speech happens and the centrifuges just start getting made left and right, you know, but I'll, at the same time, they're also building up the industry, right? Right. And I, well, I think it's important to point out how uranium gets used, right? So it takes far less uranium, about 25 kilograms, to produce a nuclear bomb. Uh, it takes tons, literal tons of, irani- of uranium, excuse me, to power a nuclear reactor for a year. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, that limiting Iran's production of uranium uh, is, is limiting their, their bomb-making capacity, it's, it's true. But what's truer is that we are limiting their power production capacity. Because right. if they are, if they're telling the truth, they're not enriching uranium highly, um, they have to produce a lot of low enriched uranium in right. order to provide power. So this whole thing starts to get kind of wonky to me. And, and, and there are some, there are some weird things like uranium to enrich it to the power level is about 4%, 4 to 5% uh, enriched. That's the hard part, right? The right. hard part's over. Once you've er- enriched it to 4 to 5%, it only takes a couple steps to take it all the way up to the 95% or whatever highly enriched uranium for bomb building. Right. The other interesting thing to note is that a byproduct of of power plant of, of nuclear power plants is plutonium. So as these nuclear reactions are happening, uh it creates plutonium which can also be used for weapons. Now, here's the caveat. In order for that plutonium to be weapons grade uh, there have to be some steps taken in the process of energy production. So you have to switch out the core very frequently to prevent the buildup of, of a, a bad uh, anomalous uh, plutonium isotope. And, right. and that plutonium isotope is very unstable and, and might cause your explosion to fizzle uh, right. before the big bang actually happens. So when we, when we started this nuclear deal and we, we wanted inspectors on the inside, obviously we want people to you know, keep an eye on, on what they're doing. That's what they're looking for here. They're looking for evidence of Iran swapping out cores mm-hmm. um, in order to, you know, get their highly enriched plutonium or evidence of, of creating highly enriched uranium. Yeah. Neither of which we ever found. Right. Well, found at this point. I'll tell you what, let's, let's jump into the deal. In 2015, President Barack Obama uh, spearheaded this agreement that we've all come to know as the Iranian nuclear deal, but which is actually called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And uh, it's an agreement between Iran and a group of nations known as the P5 plus one, which is a thoroughly silly way of saying the UN Security Council plus Germany, because that's basically all it represents, right? Um, so the idea was we would use the incentive of lifting sanctions to get concessions from Iran and, or I'm sorry, concessions to get Iran to comply with restrictions on their nuclear technology and capability. Um, These restrictions were intended to ensure that Iran cannot develop nuclear weapons technology while simultaneously lengthening the timeline required for Iran to develop a bomb if they chose, you know, to hell with it, I'm just going to go ahead and break the agreement. Well, what we're trying to do is actually set them back. So the idea was... In 2003, a whistleblower told us that Iran was working on uh, nuclear weapons, that it wasn't just for technology. And one, of those anonymous, yeah. one of those anonymous whistleblowers. Well, actually, no. It was an Iranian from the Iranian Atomic Energy uh, Department. 
And he, uh, you know, he asked for asylum, came over and told us, you know, this is what's going on. Uh, we also, through our intelligence agencies, had pretty good intel, and, you know, Israel is obviously watching Iran like a hawk, um, that they were working on, mili- you know, nuclear military technology all the way up until 2009. Mm. And then there is question in that period from 2009 to 2015. So, again, Obama spearheads this, you know, along with the other UN Security Council members plus Germany, spearheads this agreement in order to hopefully get a handle on Iran's nuclear capability before it becomes something that can bite us in the ass. So what did the Iran nuclear deal do in Iran? Well, among other things, it called for the shutdown of a heavy water nuclear facility. It imposed a cap on the amount of enriched uranium Iran could have. I think it was like 300 kilograms. Uh, and the percentage to which that uranium uranium can be enriched uh, and I think they capped that right around 4%, which is the percentage needed for nuclear power. Right. Um, it also called for a drastic reduction in the number of centrifuges that Iran had. And of course, centrifuges are used to enrich uranium for either power production or weapon making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two thirds of the 19,000 centrifuges Iran had in operation were to be placed into storage with Iran only allowed to operate 6,000 and only 5,100 for the purposes of enriching uranium. Yeah, and it the Iran nuclear deal is long. It's something like, I think, 500 pages, and it is full of restrictions and staggering dates of effect, all to be overseen by the International Atomic Energy Agency and its inspectors for a period of 15 years. Oh, I love those global letter agencies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after the 15 years, all the restrictions are lifted. Uh, In exchange for their compliance, the UN, the EU, and the U.S. agreed to lift economic sanctions that had been imposed because of Iran's nuclear activities, while sanctions that have been imposed due to things like human rights violations will remain in place. Uh, Supporters of the Iran deal praise it uh, through its approach to restricting Iranian nuclear capabilities while still providing for the peaceful use of nuclear energy. Uh, they especially tout the provisions that lengthen the timeline on, on on an Iranian nuclear weapon should Iran decide to break the agreement. So the idea is we were getting to the point where Iran was roughly a year away or maybe a year and a half away, and hopefully this agreement will make them something more akin to two years away or this, so on and so forth. This whole thing to me seems like a huge straw man. I mean – Who are we, first off, to prevent a sovereign nation from pursuing nuclear power technology? To me, that's that's ridiculous. Uh, On the other hand, death to America chance and nuclear bombs really don't mix. Yeah. Um, So I'm kind of conflicted. Like, yeah. And 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 the reason I say it seems like a straw man is because of the limitations, like 300 kilograms is plenty to build a nuke. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, 25 kilograms to take a nuke. We got we got 10 nukes every every month. What is it? I think right. it's every month or so yeah, yeah. that they can produce 300 kilograms of uranium. So it, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I, I guess in the sense of slowing them down, it yeah. certainly does. They can't build 100 nukes this month. Um, but so long as they can take that final step to take the uranium from 4 percent to 95 percent in secret, Mm -hmm. then they've still got enough to make bombs. So it seems to me that what this deal is actually doing is hampering Iran's cheap energy production Mm -hmm. and and, you know, putting a grip around the throat of their economy. Yeah. 
Well, I'm not. Well, actually, I, I would quibble with that last part because the lifting of any sanctions for Iran, Iran's economy is deeply troubled, and largely because of all the sanctions. That's that, a, that's that are a fair point. So I guess but uh, here's it's something kind of tit for tat. There, here's something that that I, I kind of want to push back on though is the idea that uh, it's not fair for us to meddle with their ability to have cheap nuclear energy, right? For one, um, we're not we're not talking about Argentina. Uh, we're talking about somebody who is actively sponsoring terrorism, right? And we're we're talking about somebody who is, in no uncertain terms, said that they want to see uh, at least two countries eradicated from the face of the earth. Mm. You know, um, and on the other hand, too, what is the alternative, right? I I, I get where you're coming from as far as it is deeply hypocritical for the UN Security Council and the nuclear powers of the world to sit there and tell the rest of the world that you can't have nukes. However, what if everyone has nukes, right? Look at how deeply afraid we are that Pakistan and, and India are going to pop off at any moment. We just had a scare a couple months ago. Mm. So I think that, that unfortunately, that is yet another terrible byproduct of the fact that we let the atom out of the bottle is that... It, there is no other way to function. If everyone has a nuke, then we're looking at nuclear winners like every other day, you know, cause once one person, you know, launches, it's, it's like, it's like the beginning of world war one. I. I mean, you know, where the, the alliance system and the, and the entanglements and stuff. And before you knew it, the right. whole world was at war and that's, what's going to happen if everybody has nukes. So we have to find a way to allow for countries to have nuclear energy. Hey man, I'm a big supporter of nuclear energy, but at the same time, if they've shown themselves to be bad actors, then we have to do it cautiously. Yeah. And, and Iran has shown that whether justified by the coup or not. I mean, we've reached the point when we're talking about somebody firing a nuclear missile. I don't care about what we did. I don't, I don't at that point. I say at that point, I don't want to see a nuclear missile get launched. I don't want us to do it. I don't want you to do it. You right. Know? Like, uh, who cares who started it at this yeah. point? We're going to wipe each other off the face of the map. Someone's got to end it. I, yeah, I get that. I do. Um, I'm just I'm just not sure that that the way we're going about it, you know, works because what ends up happening with the nuclear deal um, you know, people are saying that Iran went ahead and flouted the deal anyway. Right. Well, there's actually there are there are plenty of people. And actually, is, despite what I just said, I, too. And a critic of the nuclear deal, right? So, I mean, there are problems with it. Uh, critics accuse President Obama of, you know, reaching Neville Chamberlain-like levels of appeasement with the Iran nuclear deal. What does that mean? Neville Chamberlain would be the prime minister in the 30s of Britain who just kept acquiescing to Hitler's demands. Hitler was like, well, we'd like to have the Sudetenland back. And Neville Chamberlain was like, yeah, oh, sure. Okay, yeah. We, we just want peace. And he was like, well, okay, we'd... We'd also like Alsace-Lorraine back. And he was yeah. like, oh, oh, okay, we, we, we just want peace. Oh, I'd also like you to shine my boots. Yeah, Austria is going to join our empire. Uh, oh, oh, okay, as long as you don't fire a gun. Like Can you please massage my shoulders? Lower, <laughs> low, lower. So critics charge that that's what Obama is doing here. I mean, think about it. The, all the restrictions lift in 15 years. So basically, Iran can do you know everything that we ask of it. Right. And like you said, they're still not that far away from the bomb. And when the 15 years is up, they are free the day after to go ahead and, you know, slap that bomb together and fire off. Right. right. Meanwhile, all the sanctions have been lifted that have helped uh, Iran pull itself up from the economic turmoil that it's currently engaged. in. Right. right? So so we're at risk of, of bolstering Iran's economy, bringing them back into a world economy status of, of sorts. Yeah. Uh, and still 
having capability to produce nuclear yeah. weapons after 15 Not years. Not to mention some of the side things that went down as part of the deal, right? So there was actually a huge DEA investigation into drugs at the time. And Iran basically requested and Obama shielded Hezbollah elements from that DEA investigation, went to the DEA and said, hey, Back leave off, Hezbollah guys. alone because we're trying to put together this deal. Also as part of the, well, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. As part of another deal that allegedly has nothing to do with the Iran nuclear deal, on the day that the Iran nuclear deal was signed, something like $1.7 billion in Iranian frozen assets was delivered back to them. This, this world court ruling that had been held up for years suddenly got pushed through. And not only was it given back to them, but it was given back to them in pallets of cash. In cash, right. Cash, untraceable, give it to Hezbollah. They can do whatever they want to do with it, cash. And granted, it was their money to begin with. It this was Iran's money to begin this with. This wasn't Absolutely. American tax dollars or something. Like, I've seen that floating around. You know, yeah. Obama gives $1.7 billion in American no, money to Hezbollah. Not true. Complete bullshit. It was, it was Iranian <laughs> money in escrow, right. basically. Yeah. Right. Uh, pending a court battle. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, they cite... Uh, critics cite the weaknesses and in, in the absence of requirements on ballistic, ballistic missile technology development. They're free to continue to do that. The Iran nuclear deal does nothing about that. Um, there's actually limits in the Iran nuclear deal for the inspection of military facilities. There is only one military facility that the IAEA is allowed to go and inspect. Yeah, now, we're not enriching our uranium in that one. Now, if you're building a nuclear military weapon, where are you going to build it at? The civilian power plant or at a military facility, right? Sure. And, you know, and, and just the idea that in light of Iran's continued funding of terror, continuing to, to be Iran, that we're going to cut this deal with them and not ask them to shape up or ship out in other facets. Mm. And, and, you know, that one I will actually, I'll concede. To me, that one is silly because you got to start somewhere, right? You know what I mean? Like, you, you can't say, well, we're never going to make a deal with Iran unless they do all the things that we want them to do, right? right? Become America or die. <laughs> yeah, do exactly what I tell you to. Yeah, that's never going to work. But, you know, at the same time, there are some things, you know, you'd be like, hey, instead of us shielding uh Hezbollah from the DEA. Hmm. Um, you know, how about you cut ties with Hezbollah? You know, what do you think about that? So it leaves you wondering, supporter, critic, G, I wonder which side President Trump falls on for the Iran nuclear deal. Well, President Trump never wanted to miss a chance to blow up an Obama policy, pulled America out of the Iran deal on May 8th, 2018. And despite the IAEA's insistence that Iran had and has cooperated and complied with the deal fully, Trump insists that one can reach the conclusion uh, only if one has a vested interest in keeping the deal alive and that Iran is violating the spirit of the deal, if not the letter. So the UN and now the P4 plus one, which is a thoroughly complicated way of saying the UN Security Council in Germany Minus America. Well, wait a minute. Now my way is getting more complicated. My bad. Uh, they are desperately trying to maintain the deal, but Iran is pretty thoroughly pissed that the U.S. pulled out and uh, actually reimposed sanctions. He didn't just pull out of the deal. He put all those sanctions back in place. Right. And the day that America dropped out, Supreme Leader Khamenei, not Khomeini, said, I said from the first day, don't trust America. And the American flag was, of course, burned in Parliament that very night. So regardless of what you think about that deal 
we made the deal. Right. And in the absence of hard evidence that the deal was broken, you don't just break deals. Well, there is some evidence that the deal was broken. All right. Here's the deal. So Israel admits uh, shortly before Trump pulls us out that they had Mossad uh, in Tehran uh, this entire time. They actually went ahead and dropped the dime on themselves and said that they've got intelligence assets working in Iran. I mean, everybody knew that, but sure. Israel admitted it. And they said that they found a warehouse that has, uh, you know, just thousands and thousands of pages of documents. And they've got CDs where they've converted some of the documents to discs and stuff. And Netanyahu basically gets on television and makes this big presentation and highlights the fact that Iran lied because come to find out, these documents do back up everything that we heard about the Iranian nuclear program in the early 2000s. The 2003 guy said they were working on weapons, Mm. our intelligence thinking they were working on weapons up till 2009. So when the nuclear deal got put in place, one of its requirements was that Iran had to basically write down and relate the entire history of their nuclear program. Like you have to tell us everything so that we can accurately judge where we need to send inspectors and what we should be looking for here and what we should be looking for there. They didn't mention anything about the entire military program. Mm. So in a sense right there, they broke a tenant of the deal. Now, if they're complying with the 300 kilogram rule and the 3.67% rule, is it a big deal? Right. Well, how do we know if they're complying with the 300 kilogram and the 3.67% deal if they're not disclosing other locations where they're producing and enriching? There's another thing that's worth noting. So when Trump, you know, is kind of saying that they're not, uh, you know, jiving with the spirit of the deal, German intelligence reports say that Iran, they've got Iran basically looking on the black market in Germany for everything that you need to build a nuclear ballistic missile, Mm. except for the nuclear part, like, you know, in various pieces and parts and stuff. Because we'll assume they already have it. When Germany put that out, you know, they said, we want to be clear, nothing that we found shows that they're breaking the Iranian nuclear deal, but that's because the Iranian nuclear deal never said anything about ballistic missiles, right? So that was one of the criticisms. Right, fair enough, Then we come to the issue of the heavy water nuclear plant, which produces plutonium as a byproduct, right? So the requirement of the deal was that they had to fill the, I think they call it the calendria of the reactor in with cement. Right. And basically destroy the tubes that are in the reactor that, you know, I think you put the rods in or whatever. Um, So as February of this year, uh, the chief of the Iranian atomic thing came out and said, we never trusted the West to keep the deal. So uh, we didn't. We had backup tubes uh, ready to go, and uh, we can put them uh, right back in and get going at at the heavy water plant. Wonderful. And and since Iran has testified to the UN directly that it will begin to break tenets of the deal if sanctions aren't lifted, and I think as of the day of this recording, the first batches of uranium are set to enrich beyond three point six seven percent. And they are going to begin uh, blowing the production cap of 300 kilograms. And and who knows how far beyond that they're capable of. You know, who, yeah. who knows? And that brings us squarely up to our present troubles. And now that we're just swimming in all this sweet, sexy, historical context. Uh, uh, okay, buddy. Oh, uh, yes. Anyway, what specifically is going on with all these recent distractions? I mean, I, I mean acts of aggression. Oh, Sorry. Yes. All right. So on totally ju- <laughs> not a ploy to distract us from the Democratic primaries and <laughs> the 2020 not. election. Mm-mm. All right. 
So on June 13th of this year, two Japanese oil tankers in the Strait of Hormuz were attacked while Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was Abe. in Abe, sorry, was in Iran meeting with Ayatollah Khamenei. Uh, this comes on the heels of May 12th attacks on two Saudi Arabian tankers, a Norwegian tanker, and United Arab Emirates. Uh, they had a bunkhouse ship for like employees and stuff. Um, that much we can agree on. So I guess we'll leave it there. That's the end of the episode and I'll see you guys next week. Not a chance, <laughs> not a chance. So the U S maintains that these attacks were carried out by the Iranian Republican guard, uh, echoing Iran's mining of that area, as we mentioned in the late eighties. Right. Uh, now I find that kind of hard to believe because like why is iran even gonna bother in the midst of all these tensions and yeah in and, the 80s it made it made strategic sense it makes a little less strategic sense now right yeah. and, and i think there's it seems to me that there's pretty lack of evidence here i mean the u.s released a video of you know a boat in the dark uh, coming up and retrieving this unexploded mine from the side of his ship. But mm -hmm. obviously they're not wearing like Iranian military uniforms. Yeah. As far as I know, they haven't traced any of those individuals to like the Iranian Republican guard directly. It's just kind of like, Hey, here's this video of some guys approaching this ship and pulling <laughs> yeah. a mine off it in the dark, you know, rainy as hell. I, I will say they, they say, they say that the mine is consistent with an Iranian limpet mine, which yeah. I'm sure anyone could get their hands on if they tried hard enough. Um, and that they, they claim that they've retrieved a leftover magnet fragments of the mine and finger and palm prints from the ship's hole. Now, let me ask you, if Iran was sending someone to retrieve a mine from a ship, to cover evidence of their involvement, mm. wouldn't they wear gloves? Well, if you would imagine the entire time, everyone would be wearing gloves. Yes, yeah. yes. because they obviously want this to be a secret. That's why they're now, going back what's to cover it up. What's interesting is if Iran did do this, that guy's dead. Long. If that guy long dead. just happened to not be wearing his glove <laughs> and had to lean up against that chip all that, we, we, by announcing that, we killed that guy. So what does Iran claim? Of course, Iran is claiming that this is a false flag attack perpetrated to increase hostility towards Iran on the world stage and to justify military action in light of the unraveling nuclear deal. And who in their right mind can argue with Iran there? I mean... That's the that's the, the ugh, that's the worst part of living in America is that so many times we've been lied to mm. and we've been roped into engagements on false premises that when shaky evidence like this comes from our intelligence, it's hard to believe them. Yeah. On the other hand, if you are Iran yeah. chanting death to America and you want to see America wiped out, taking advantage of that self-same mistrust yeah looks like a good move right yeah because all you got to do they've done it 10 times before it's always They're boats too I, I, you know <laughs> gulf of tonkin the uss maine it's always it boats sure is it sure is so yeah. it is hard as an american uh to to believe in either side of this thing yeah. like it just kind of leaves you in this place like well it Probably, probably Trump. Yeah, He's no, my, to my, war. John Bolton over here. My initial gut reaction, especially because yes, like you just said, John Bolton is back on the scene. You know, he didn't screw up enough shit back during Iraq in 2003 
that John goddamn let's fire the missiles first and figure it out later. Bolton is back in the mix. Thank goodness for that. So I think my reaction and a lot of people's initial reaction uh, was, yeah, exactly. Like you said, it, it's a setup, right? And actually, if I remember correctly, the Gulf of Tonkin was trending on Twitter uh, the day that, 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 that <laughs> this happened on June, th- June 14th, you know? Um, at the same time, I, I do, there is part of me that wonders, I, I'm going to go ahead and say that I, I think it's false flag shit. I think they're trying to bait us into a war. However, it's weird to me that none of America's enemies have fully taken advantage of the fact that Donald Trump is our president, because it's like you say, if Iran, um, you know, was going to try to use something to its advantage, why not use that mistrust and why not use it while Donald Trump is the president? Sure. Right. I mean, if you want to talk about a country that is not unified and ready to prosecute a war, I, th- I, I don't know if there's ever been a country, you know, like 2019 Trump's America. Right. Right. We're, we're not ready to engage in anything approaching the Iraq war. I don't even know if we're ready to engage in anything approaching uh, the six days war. You know mm. what I mean? So I, I wonder if this could be, you know, Iran basically like poking the bear, right? poking the bear, like going out there and stirring the pot, stirring shit. They've already got the world community pissed at us, uh, you know, about pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, I'm not going to say, I'm not making a distinction there. I'm just saying they already see public opinion on their side. France and Britain, I would not imagine are going to back us. If we go to Iran, if we go into Iran, like they did with Iraq, unless we come up with some, something better than a palm print. Yeah. You know? So if, if what better time than now, you know, I, I will give them that. Um, but I, I really do think it's, it's some false flag shit. And that only furthers with the next little escalation in our little drama, because, uh, sure enough, a United States drone gets shot down in Iranian airspace, question mark. (laughs) Uh, So here's the deal. Not according to America. Uh, Iran claims it has indisputable proof that this American drone that was shot down was flying in Iranian airspace and ignored several warnings before being shot down and that they have acted in accordance with international law. Iran also cites several other instances of manned and unmanned aircraft that have illegally entered Iranian airspace to which they did not retaliate. Iran claims that certain interests from both inside and outside the Middle East are escalating tensions in order to build a stronger military presence in the region and sell arms. So there's no question that actually a lot of this data that we have about their nuclear capabilities and all that stuff Allegedly, America is flying drones. Oh, sure. Um, right That's not up even to, allegedly. That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like right up to Iranian airspace. Yes. And, and to tell you the truth, I mean, it's not like we didn't used to fly the U-2s over Russia. I, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, man. Uh, if the, the you other- think, if you are a part of the American government apparatus and you think that Iran might be getting ready to do some awful shit to us, um, I'm completely cool with you flying drones over their airspace. So at times, I'm sure we have. Right. You know what I mean? I, I'm right. sure, yeah. I, I, yeah, whether whether it happened in this case or not. But I think the the guy who was talking to the UN on behalf of Iran, I don't remember what his official title was, but he pointed out, and I think it's interesting, that hours after this drone was shot down, Iran approached the, the, the world press and said, here's what happened. Here are the GPS coordinates of this drone uh, mm-hmm. that was shot down. It happened inside of, of Iranian airspace. And it took America a long, 
long time to come back and provide the coordinates that we said the engagement happened at. So, yeah, which are supposed to be not in Iranian airspace, right? Correct? Which yeah. right in international waters. So yeah. it's just it's just a little weird. It leaves you going yet again, and we've been lied to. Who do we trust? And on the other side of that. Well, what better time to take advantage of the distrust yeah, yeah. in America than now? Well, it's we were talking the other night, and you, and you mentioned that point about how long it took America to do the GPS shit, and I was like, well, why would it? Right. Like, like why wouldn't? It, okay, if if you if make you a did phone this, call, if you're American, you flew a drone into Iranian airspace, and and it got shot down. Uh, you know, you're caught. You don't immediately start spoofing GPS locations or whatever, like, you know, making shit up. I mean, why did it take so long? It's it's a really good question. So aside from the drone and the tanker attacks, um, there is another aspect of this conflict that's kind of been brewing in the background, but has recently bubbled up as well. And that is cyber attacks. And we have a really interesting history of cyber attacks, both from Iran on the U.S. and from the U.S. on Iran, it's pretty much tit for tat, although America's tits are huge yeah. in comparison to Iran's tats. Do you like that? Yeah. Huge, huge tits yeah. we got here. No, we do have nice uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, so, so if we go way back to 2012, Iran launched an attack against a state-owned oil company, uh, Saudi Aramco. They released a virus that erased data on 30,000 computers and left an image of a burning American flag on the screens. <laughs> Classic death to America. And then I'm sure most people have heard about Stuxnet, um, this is one of the coolest virus infections ever. Um, this was an infection that was brought into Iran on a USB key. Folks, don't plug in USB keys to your networks, even if it says hot girls porn from the next desk. <laughs> like, don't do it. So this thing, once it got a hold, it spread out through Iranian networks and it was programmed to look for specific software that powers logic controllers that are used inside of nuclear facilities to control the speed of centrifuges. Oh, yeah. And once it found these logic controllers and infected itself, it would speed them up or slow them down minutely, but then report good data back to the control center. So the idea was to ruin their enrichment of an, an uranium by by wearing these centrifuges down quickly by yeah. by spinning them too fast and just basically screwing things up while at the same time reporting data back that was good so the scientists were like scratching their heads uh, you know, reporting to officials like it's not working. Yeah. All the numbers are here. <laughs> it looks good. So basically, just to throw this mess of confusion, dude, screaming in the into the night, Iranian just system. mad as hell. I swear to God, I I, I carried the one. I don't know. <laughs> That's right, exactly. So so brilliant, and, and we don't know exactly who created Stuxnet, but it is widely believed to be a product of of U.S and Israeli intelligence. There yeah. are some markers within the code that's been examined by Kaspersky, and the U.S. has been pretty flatly denying um, that, that they were a part of Stuxnet, but it's it's pretty obvious. It was at least a, a global nation state um, yeah, that did right. this, and to think America wasn't involved is kind of crazy. Um, there's another piece of malware called Flame Malware that was even more powerful than Stuxnet, uh, and when researchers got hot on the trail... It disappeared. I mean, really? it absolutely erased itself as these researchers were trying to kind That's of like Mission Impossible. It is. Shit. It's like yeah, yeah. Mission Impossible level malware. Um, 
so you know it's been it's been going on like this and 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 flame is largely believed to be the work of the nsa as well yeah and Although, i think, I think again, cyber cyber warfare in general i don't think you know especially people our age you know you obviously you are interested in these things but i think a lot of people don't realize that the cyber warfare has just become part and parcel to geopolitics it has like it, it has and russia you know the whole russian election thing you know that that's kind of dragged that out into the surface and yes best believe even down to the level of us and iran probably us and albania we've probably prodded around in albania's systems you know i mean i, it, I yeah. wouldn't doubt it a bit and and i ran back at us in 2016 the us indicted iranian hackers for DDoSing a bunch of U.S. financial companies. Uh, there was an intrusion into a small dam outside of New York City, and it was found that this hacker had access to flow rate, temperature information, gate controls, et cetera, et cetera. However, luckily, the gate, the dam gate, was disconnected for maintenance yeah. during the time of this intrusion. So who knows if they were just gathering information or if they were planning on like, you know, dropping the floodgate and, yeah. and trying to flood New York or something. Wow, that's I don't wild, know, man. but it was disconnected for maintenance. So luckily we'll never know yeah. uh, what exactly they were doing in there. But the interesting part about that, uh, and this is kind of a side note, was that we have started to hold individual hackers accountable for nation states actions uh, against us. For example, typically... If if Iranian hackers hack America, we're going to hold Iran responsible for those hacks. Well, right. we have started taking these hackers and giving them individual indictments. Um, and and it's it's weird because this idea of nation states involving engaging in cyber warfare is relatively new, and we don't really have strict international rules and regulations uh regarding hacking so it's kind of a kind of a black hole here is it is it mostly a thing that that's you know sort of like what's happened with russia though we're like we're we're indicting people but you know they you know they're part of like the russian kgb and we're never gonna see them unless there's some well, weird that, gross mistake you that's know? absolutely true but you've got you've got american uh military officials that are expressing some concern that that indicting individuals rather than holding a nation publicly responsible mm -hmm. is allowing nation states to kind of get a get out of jail free card, right? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. so the nation can just say, oh, well, that was just rogue elements within the government. This yeah. wasn't official Iranian uh, involvement. This was just a guy in Iran who happens to be a hacker. So yeah. you've Elite got these peanut eater 36 is your enemy, <laughs> right. not us. Oh, sure. He was employed by the, the, by the Republican guard, but this was all on his own. This yeah, was outside. Right, right. So, so we are in really kind of weird new waters here and we have some tension internally about how we handle thing, these things. And it's, and it's really interesting to me, um, that we would, you know, place blame individually instead of investigating a, a nation for it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. To me, I mean, that's, that's, that's like singling out soldiers on the battlefield and, uh, and charging them with murder. Precisely. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a weird way to go about it. Exactly. It's a weird way to go about it. So, so anyway, tit for tat back and forth. And then now you've got Trump saying that we have unleashed, uh, you know, in the wake of, of the drone and the tanker attacks um, and, and Trump kind of waffling and going back and forth. He says, well, we uh, we instituted a cyber attack against Iran's missile systems and it was successful. And Iran comes back the next day and says, nope, our national firewall catches all that stuff. You guys try it every day and we <laughs> blocked you. That wasn't successful at all. Yeah. So, again, 
who the heck knows yeah. what's going on? You know, who's winning the battle, whether blows are landing, where they're yeah. landing. Well, I don't think, I don't think, you know, I don't think nations readily admit breaches. And when they do admit breaches, I don't think they, you know, are always forthcoming with the extent of the breach. You sure. Know what I mean? Especially so, when tensions are rising and escalating, you don't want your people <laughs> to feel like they're losing lose faith. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's, I mean, hell, they've manipulated casualty numbers for years, but that's okay. So I, oh man, where, where do you, where do you come down on all this? Right. So here's my crazy theory for what's happening. Right. I think that all of this, you know, obviously the cyber attacks probably happened and they may or may not have been rebuffed. A drone absolutely was shot down. Yep. Who knows where it was. The tanker got exploded, man. A tanker got exploded or you know? four or six. What I think uh, it was six. Yeah. At the end of the day, um, I think that there is a strong chance that Trump is pulling a shell game and we see it with North Korea. I think this is brinksmanship in order to make him look that much more awesome when he pulls back from it and finds a way to achieve a peace, right? I think the nuclear deal, he's kind of slamming his head against the wall because his base doesn't want to let him, uh, you know, accept something that looks like the nuclear deal. And they want something much more strident. And I don't know what his plan is for that, but I do very much so with when I hear Trump say, and he said in recent weeks, like, I'm willing to sit down with Iran at the table. Uh, at one point there was, uh, you know, he had apparently given the order to launch a, uh, a strike back at Iran because of the drone and then and rescinded then the order that it would kill a hundred people. Yeah. Yeah. Rescinded the order. Oh, yeah. I'm such a good guy. <laughs> so in a snapshot, I think that's what he's trying to do. I think he's trying to push things to the edge, just like he did with North Korea. Remember rocket man and yeah. all that stuff. And, and the weird alert that hit Hawaii that a nuclear missile had been launched right. and all that stuff. And then North Korea, you know, what's Trump doing this weekend? He's walking around the DMZ with Shaking Kim Jong-un. hands with Kim Jong-un. Yeah. yeah, in fact, I think he stepped foot in North Korea. Absolutely, you know what I'm saying? Yes. So first, I think, first, honestly, first time a U.S. president has been in North yeah, Korea and Yeah, absolutely. Ever? Yeah, mean, ever, I, th I think. I mean, I, I would say I... Yeah, yeah I think yeah. it's ever. So I think it's that's kind of his shtick. I think... That he wants a Nobel Prize like Obama got. Mm. I mean, I think that's what this boils down to is like one-upsmanship. And so he's going to create these things, and that's his foreign policy. I create this issue, and then I bring us back from the brink, and I look at how great a, a statesman and diplomat I am. Yeah, I mean, problem, I think, reaction, solution, yeah, anyone? I absolutely, mean, <laughs> man. I, I, I honestly, and this is the same playbook that, that presidents in America has used for years Maybe not uh, so blatantly, though. Yeah, you maybe know? not so blatantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think we got to call back to, to Bush's axis of evil speech and recognize just how tenuous the balance is here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, three words brought us uh, to a to a terrible place in relations when I, w with Iran right when things looked like they might have started to peak. So, yeah, it's, you know, Trump. God, just the biggest <laughs> mouth. Who knows what he's going to say? And who knows how Iran's going to take it? Um, I, I think to act so flippantly with such a huge threat is just ridiculous. I mean, yeah. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. And, 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 you know, where I stand on the nuclear deal, I don't know. Like I've said, yeah. you know, multiple times, where I stand with Iran, I don't know. We have smashed these guys. We have... We have in instigated coups. We have deposed leadership. Yeah. We have paid groups of people 
to show up in public and do terrible things. Like, there are people in the government who would say, we deserve to get smacked by Iran. Right. And, and half of me agrees. Yeah. And then there's this other half of me that feels like at some point, it doesn't matter who started it or what we've done in the past. Yeah. If you're going to try to kill me, yeah. I'm going to eliminate you. And that's in the in the pushback when you say something like that is like, "Oh, well, it's it's convenient not to care about who started it when you started it." And it's like, again, no, you're right. Call me an asshole. Yeah. I'm still not getting nuked. Right. Like I still don't want our planes to get hijacked. And so at the end of the day, I am going to keep a really close eye on Iran. I want it's like I said, I want relations to improve. You know what I'm saying? I don't want anybody at anybody's throats, uh, if at all possible. But I'm also not going to get Pollyanna about it and be like, we deserve it and ignore it. And, you know, they're a sovereign nation and, and let them do whatever they want. I want to respectfully keep an eye on it. Right. So, you know so I mean? let's talk about when, whether and when military strikes are appropriate. Because, I mean, at this point... Uh, killing any number of civilians for an oil tanker or a drone being shot down is ludicrous to yeah, me. Yeah. Like, absolutely. If we are going to strike Iran militarily, you better make damn sure that that no civs get harmed, period. Because one well, innocent body for a drone is is no <laughs> is for, no fair trade for a drone yeah right that's, for that's a dr- or right. for an oil tanker. Even. Well, what what I'm saying there there is a point like there there's also this thing where like. You know, I don't want any civilians to to get harmed, and that's why we should stay out of other countries and stuff because we're going. It is it's part of military operations. We can do everything we can to mitigate civilian casualties, but part of conducting military operations is casualties. It's sure. going to happen. Um, and you also you get weird practices, and I'm not accusing the Iranians of doing anything like this. I'm just bringing it up. At times, people have you know, housed, uh, their, their military supplies or their command center stuff in the basements of hospitals sure. just to try to avoid the strike. So what do you do at that point? Do you let the war drag on and soldiers continue to die for years or do you take out the head of the, the beast, you know? So there are all those questions whenever you're talking about military operations, which is why I think the burden for proof for a military operation is incredibly high. Yes. I don't, I don't want to see your assertion that, uh, you know, Iraq has yellow cake. I want to see a goddamn picture of the thing with somebody standing there with a calendar, you know, time stamped and right. everything. Like I want right. to Let see, me see a the lot New York times proof. from that yes, day. Exactly. In the photo. Um, and I think in, in lieu of that, uh, I think sanctions are the way you go. I think sanctions are how we achieve the ends that we want to achieve. And people bristle with the sanctions. They say, well, you know, the people in the country are starving and, and you're really, you're hurting the civilians. And well, that's actually, that's, that's not a bug. That's a feature. The idea is yes, the civilians may end up hating us, but the situation is not going to change until they get rid of the present regime. Right? So it's incumbent upon them to either fall in step with the rest of the world or continue to do what they're doing and and try to get their hands on a nuclear missile and come at us. I mean, right. that's their choice, you know, but that's what sanctions do. And I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a strong proponent of sanctions. So as far as where we're talking about with Iran, uh, the nuclear deal isn't quite strong enough for me. It's got, you know, some loopholes and some weird catches and I don't think it goes far enough. 
Uh, at the same time, going into Iran right now, even even if we take out morality, like the practicality of starting a third war oh, it's in the Middle East is absolutely fucking insane. And 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 to take a page from from Tulsi Gabbard's book, who uh, was the number one Googled candidate after <laughs> the first Democratic debate, I'll say probably largely for this reason. Um, you know, Tulsi says every time we get involved in an operation in the Middle East, it turns out worse for us. Yeah. And she's absolutely right. She I mean, is. Look at what we did with Iran in the 50s. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's coming back to bite us. So do we really think we're going to get involved and it's just, it's going to turn out great this time. Right. And granted, sometimes it's turned out well, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, absolutely, we should have fought Hitler, yeah, you know, yeah. Stalin, et cetera, et cetera. There are times when military intervention uh, is warranted. This yeah. is so far away from one of those times yeah. um, that I just, I feel like we've got to do something to keep us from, from getting drawn back. And maybe, maybe Tulsa is the answer. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. You don't know. That's not a brilliant segue to the next episode that we're going to do in two weeks about the democratic candidates. I'm trying to figure out. That's right. I'm trying to figure out if we should start printing trading cards or not for Operation Iran Storm, all right? And here you are. Okay, all right. So, uh, guys, I think that does it. Uh, I hope that you have gained some context on Iran today. And uh, now, in case there are any gaps or things that we missed, world-class producer and fact-checker extraordinaire, the Ayatollah of Correctness on the Sense and Theory podcast is here to correct us. Beanzo, what have you got? Damn, fellas, two good episodes, and you think listeners are ready for some two-hour epic? Well, it's your listener count, I guess. I get paid either way. Listeners, I want you to imagine the absolute state of theory looking at this week's outline and all the names he was about to mangle. The numerous incorrect pronunciation of what's officially known as the Islamic Republic of Iran are made somehow bearable thinking about theory. Sweating like a six-year-old trying to sneak a fart in church while drilling himself on Mossadegh and Khomeini versus Khamenei. Classic theory. He'll lecture you for 45 minutes on the historical context of Jimmy Carter and then call the USSR Russia. Oh, geez, what sense do today? Well, it was 290 people who died when Iran Air Flight 655 was shot down, not 300. The CIA was formed in 1947, not 1945. And I thought it was weird that Theory didn't correct you because you boys sure as hell were doing a lot of job stealing out there catching each other's mistakes. He might have been distracted since he's getting ready to just egregiously tell our listeners something that's flat out wrong. See, it wasn't some whistleblower that told us Iran had lied about attempting to acquire nuclear weapons in 2003. It was the head of the IAEA, Mohammed Elbaradi. You were probably thinking of Jeffrey Sterling, the American CIA employee who was tried and convicted for releasing details of Operation Merlin to a journalist. I'm sure you didn't vaguely remember a Middle Eastern name and assume he was Iranian. Anyway, fellas, way to not mention Saudi Arabia while giving us a full rundown of all the necessary contacts of Iran. That's some thorough work. Fellas, back to you. This this mother <laughs> just spent five minutes cracking on us for pronunciation, dude. I would give you a pass on uh, uh, on Mossadegh yeah. and and Barati. Uh, I don't know what your mangled pronunciation was, but I'm pretty sure that's Operation Merlin. Merlin. 
Merlin, man. That's your own language. I mean, the other you don't have the capability to pronounce the glottal stops and stuff. I get it, but Merlin. Hey, before you get uh, too self righteous, though, what I just wanted to I just wanted to mention. Um, I I saw that uh, you know where the beer money went. Uh, yeah, I saw that Taylor uh, got political. Uh, yes, and, and in no way, shape, or form was that patronizing. No, let me no, tell you. it wasn't patronizing at all. In fact, those people, the the, the LGBTQ members in that <laughs> video, were paid. At, at above the standard rate, oh I'm God. tired of hearing this crap. Beans, get what is I, you guys? Ah! Hey, folks! It's Sense, one third of the Sense and Theory podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, check us out at senseandtheorypodcast.com, where you'll find links to all our social media. You can reach out to us on Facebook, argue with us on Twitter, or send us an angry email. Just knowing you guys are out there keeps us going. If you really enjoy the show, hit up patreon.com slash senseandtheory and chip in a buck or two for coffee, beer, and this server bill that keeps going up with every subscriber we get. Even if you can't afford to give your monetary support, we'll be here cutting through the bias and extremism to try and find some common ground about things that matter.